Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 106, Silent Encounters, the Esoteric and the Ancient Hermetica. In this episode, we hope to accomplish two main things. First of all, we're going to discuss some of the strategies and themes of the esoteric in the Hermetica that we've been covering in recent episodes. Things like talk of initiation, initiated silence, quasi-cultic exclusivity and secrecy, and so on, which typify these texts to some degree as esoteric material. We're also going to discuss epistemology, the question of transcendence and the question of bridging the gap of silence which separates us from the Deus Absconditus, the hidden god. Matters which for us here at the Schwepp can also be profitably understood as aspects of the textual esoteric. Then we want to address the issue of the degree to which we might conceptualize performative esotericism in antique hermetism. To put that in normal language, to what degree were the hermetists actually organizing themselves along esoteric lines with inner and outer groups and so on? This inquiry will obviously be an open-ended one, since we are open-ended in our approach to the question of the hermetic way in antiquity and whether there were any hermetists. But we will consider some texts in this episode which give us strong reason to think that there were such esoteric practices going on. This brings us to our second main line of inquiry, which will be to discuss, armed with all this data on the esoteric in the hermetica, our two most esoteric hermetica. And what we mean by that will become clear in the telling. I refer, of course, to Corpus Hermeticum 13, the secret logos of Hermes to Tat on the mountain, and the discourse of the 8th and the 9th from Nag Hammadi. These two texts are perhaps, when all is said and done, the most interesting of all the Hermetica, to us anyway, in terms of the esoteric. Although the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead wasn't really part of the history of Western esotericism until quite recently, having spent all those centuries lost amid the trackless sands of hoary Egypt. So, we begin with part one, mustering all the texts we've been discussing so far from episode 100 until now, and considering them in the light of the esoteric. The first point we want to make is that very many Hermetica, a majority even, show no signs of the esoteric, really, unless we read them as part of a larger Hermetic tradition, perhaps a teaching tradition, which did employ the esoteric. So, to take an example, Corpus Hermeticum 13, called Hieros Logos, a text about cosmogony, anthropology, and so forth. We can definitely describe this as a religious text with no problem at all. We might also want to call it philosophic, depending on our definition, but we wouldn't really describe it as esoteric, except for its title, of course, which is a call out to the mystery traditions. But if we read Corpus Medicum 3 as part of the same movement as Corpus Medicum 4, the Krater, with its transcendent, unknowable god who can nevertheless somehow be known, with its strongly drawn separation between those who have received immersion in noose and those who haven't, with its ascetic practices and rigorous cosmic ascent to God, a spiritual achievement which is framed as open only to an elect, an esoteric inner circle, and a very small elite elect at that. Then, suddenly, Corpus Medicum III, read in that light, becomes part of an esoteric tradition. So having pointed out that major caveat, that not all of the Hermetica contain signs of the esoteric, 
Let's continue with this theme of framing for a moment, because if we look at the dialogic framing of the Hermetica, we can maybe push back against that blanket statement that not all the Hermetica are esoteric. We have in the background of presumably all the Hermetica, except maybe Corpus Hermeticum 18, the theme that Hermes himself is a transmitter of privileged knowledge. Even if Hermes doesn't appear as a character in the, the particular Hermetic tractate, he's at the beginning of this uh, knowledge stream, right? In the Kore Cosmu, we have Hermes inscribing his immortal secret stelae, encoding a perennial wisdom which will inform mankind throughout time, but explicitly remains partly esoteric. Isis and Osiris, in interpreting the stelae, are to keep certain bits back from humanity. This theme of Hermes as having some kind of transcendent wisdom event or revelation, or as in the Kore Cosmu, having himself been part of the process of creation of the world and mankind, and thus in a very strong position to lay down some heavy wisdom, these themes are found in other Hermetica, and the survival of this idea into the various medieval Abrahamic receptions of Hermes lets us know that the story of Hermes, the ancient sage, the writer of esoteric wisdom, usually on some Egyptian stelae, probably existed in many sources which we don't have anymore. Thus, simply framing a text as being revealed by Hermes, or being a revelation of wisdom that comes from Hermes, is in a sense an esoteric framing. This is the father of hidden wisdom talking, so you, by reading this text, are by definition able to consider yourself part of an inner circle of sorts. We also see a number of Hermetic texts which reveal the teaching and then admonish the students to keep the wisdom secret. So the Asclepius is a great example. It has esoteric bookends. In section one, we hear that the mind is irreverent that would make public by the awareness of the many a treatise so very full of the majesty of divinity, end of quote. Then there's a whole text. And then at the end, after a long dis discourse on time and eternity, Hermes says in section 32, and you, Tat, and Asclepius, and Hamon, hide these divine mysteries among the secrets of your heart and shield them with silence. There are many other examples of this appeal to secrecy in the Hermetica listed in the notes to this episode, and we'll discuss a few more before the episode is finished. So we can extend this observation about the general framing of the Hermetica as the wisdom of Hermes to the student-teacher format, which is typical, though not universal, in the Hermetica. While not every Hermetic dialogue is framed as an initiation or a vision or what have you, the teacher-disciple relationship is present in most Hermetica, and this carries with it, I think, a social aspect. Even if we follow Festugiera and think that there was no corresponding reality in terms of genuine Hermetic circles, we have the depiction of reality. Here is a teacher instructing his student in what is sometimes explicitly described as hidden wisdom, in Corpus Hermeticum 1, the Poimandres, the wisdom is pure from the source divine revelation by the noose himself to Hermes. In Corpus Hermeticum 5, the text itself is described as an initiation into the mysteries of the god who is greater than any name. The title of Corpus Hermeticum 3, Hieros Logos, of course references the secret teachings of mystery cults. Corpus Hermeticum 14 refers to an earlier explicit teaching which is now being sort of improved upon by Hermes as he is delivering a mysticoteron hermenea, a more esoteric or more secret-revealing interpretation. Other examples can be adduced here. We also sometimes, though surprisingly rarely, 
have references to enigma and other technical terms of esoteric interpretation. And we can read those technical terms alongside more everyday language, like reading the secret writings upon the stelae, or titles like Secret Logos or Hidden Hymn, uh, both of which apply to Corpus Medicum 13. And all that kind of stuff, if we take all this together, I think we can see an overarching framing of the Hermetic teachings as privileged knowledge with a strong whiff of the initiatory surrounding it. And I see that as a fair way to approach these texts. So in that sense, we can say that the Hermetica are esoteric documents in that they um, employ themes of the esoteric for the most part in the actual way the dialogues are structured, right? I also think that it's at least an intriguing speculation, I won't make it more than that here, whether this, this teacher-disciple relationship was A, something that actually took place in hermetic circles, and B, even if it wasn't, whether we are to understand this one-on-one -on -one or one-on-a-small-select-group-of-disciples setup as a new Hellenistic-era development from traditional mystery cults toward a new model of initiation on a teacher-disciple basis. I think this is what we're looking at. The old mystery cults, the, what you might call the traditional Hellenic mysteries, were quintessentially community-based. But with the Hermetica, we get a kind of new framing of the initiatory rhetoric, the idea of a change of state transmitted through teacher-student contact, but without the initiatory sanctuary, without the group rituals associated with Eleusis or the mysteries of Dionysus, for example. So this teacher-student relationship can, and, and I think should, of course, be interpreted as a ritual relationship, depending on our definition of ritual, of course, and probably has its own ritual norms, and these might themselves be reinforced at least in part by the way the characters in Hermetic Dialogue behave. And we'll see this when we talk about Corpus Hermeticum 13 and the 8th and the 9th. There, is a, there seems to be a pattern. There seems to be a, a way of going about attaining to higher initiations, at least in those two texts. But this seems to have been a small-scale, you might almost say privatized, kind of initiation. Like these were spiritual entrepreneurs going out and doing these little kind of spiritual circles. It is not or does not present itself as being open to anyone. So the Eleusinian mysteries were open to anyone who had just the basic ritual purity. The Hermetic mysteries would seem to be open only to a small, perhaps an elite, group of religious specialists on a intellectually demanding quest for initiation and perhaps divinization. The theme of silence literal silence, as in shut up and listen, is also employed from time to time in the Hermetica in a striking way. This may have something to do with the teaching context. It certainly reads that way, as when the interlocutors and Hermes at the beginning of the Asclepius spend a moment in silence in a seemingly ritual fashion before the teaching session begins. We see the same thing, the same sort of introductory silence, in the Poimandre, section 16. New says, Be silent! I have not yet unfolded you the first discourse. As you can see, I am silent, responds Hermes. And the fact that Hermes is actually saying, I am silent, thus not being silent, I think kind of points to the fact that this is 
attempting to point out a ritual requirement rather than actually to depict the act of being silent, if you see what I mean. It's, it's telling the reader, at this point, the person receiving the wisdom needs to be silent. Maybe not. That's what it seems to say to me. We also have the idea expressed in Corpus Hermeticum 10 that the encounter with the highest god is silence. Quote, divine silence and suppression of all the senses. End quote. Finally, on this theme, we see in Corpus Hermeticum 13 a single but very intriguing description of silence as a hypostasis or divine reality of some kind, in a way familiar from Valentinian theology. See episode 83 of the podcast. Now, what we make of these themes of silence is up to us as interpreters, though all will agree, I trust, that this is fantastic stuff. But I think we're at least led to recall the theme of initiated silence, the silence as cultic injunction, which was, we have to remember, familiar to all ancient Greeks from the mysteries. It doesn't matter if these ancient Greeks were initiates, it doesn't matter if they lived in a time when the mysteries were in decline. The point is, as we discussed in episode 14 of the podcast, the mystic silence was proverbial to the degree that when the audience of these texts read the word silence or read someone saying keep silent, they would have thought, ah, initiatory themes. Now, keeping with this initiation theme, we can discuss the results of hermetic initiation. I'll put the term initiation in quotes, leaving the question of a ritual or practice-based change of state open here, right? So all of the hermetic want to teach us something, right? Often they want to teach us very different things, depending on which text we're reading. But there's a few favorite themes, especially the origins of reality, man's place in reality, which is usually very high on the scale of things, and the importance of worship of the highest god. But there's a lot of variations within those parameters, as anyone who's been following the podcast will know. But some of the Hermetica not only want to teach us things, they want us to be Become something new. Now, this either takes the form of A, to ascend beyond the astral mechanism to God, who can be found beyond the Ogdoadific stars, or sometimes the more humble goal of simply escaping from fate or astral influence, which can be conceived of as at least analogous to cosmic ascent, even if there's no higher God mentioned in that particular text. B, to acquire noesis, gnosis, or other specific faculties of consciousness which make us either into gods, or something next door to gods, or able to know God, or C, to be immortalized in some other way. In Corpus Hermeticum 13, as we shall see, to transform our bodies into new, invisible, immortal bodies while still here on Earth. And it may be that all of these processes of initiation are either the same thing or related and interconnected spiritual achievements. Now, if we look at traditional mystery cults, an improved afterlife state was one of the sort of um, signature benefits of initiation. The Orphic lamellae discussed in episode 23 are a, a very concrete example of this kind of relationship with the afterlife. And the constant references to Orphic mysteries that we get in ancient sources even if we can't quite pin down what form these mysteries took, if we read them alongside the lamellae, they make it pretty sure that these uh, plates buried with dead people are a window on ancient mystery cults vis-a-vis post-mortem existence and how to make it better, right? 
In a way, this is precisely the focus of many Hermetica. Never mind that the human soul is already immortal, in a Platonizing Hermetic text, endless reincarnation is seen as a bad situation, as we've seen in the podcast, not as being immortality. And the Hermetica offer an escape from the cycle of reincarnation. They often also offer an escape from fate or from astral influence without any reference to immortalization. But immortalization and a kind of transcendent, divinized fate after death is definitely something that some of the Hermetica offer. And this is very much in line with the ancient mystery cults, even though it's in a radically new form, probably one more suited to the cosmopolitan world of Egypt and the Roman Empire. Now, when we turn to Hermetic theory, we sometimes find ample scope for the esoteric, which is sometimes exploited to convey esoteric themes. The reason I say sometimes is because the different types of theory found in our texts mean that there isn't always scope for the esoteric. The tractates called by Festugiera and others the Stoicizing Hermetica, the ones which make no mention of transcendent realities, they really don't give us much scope here. As we saw in our episodes on Stoicism, Stoic philosophy, while it may have had aspects of esotericism in terms of the way it was taught, like not everyone could just rock up at the uh, painted porch and become a Stoic, nevertheless it didn't deploy rhetorics of, of the esoteric very much in its philosophic writing. Quite the opposite. The Stoic universe is one which is eminently knowable. In principle, eminently knowable to everyone, and the process of unveiling the truth about reality is a process of simply seeing what's there with one's inbuilt faculty of logos, which is by definition capable of comprehending what's there 100%, with no noise in the signal, so that we can really truly know reality and the truth about it. In a Platonistic universe, however, and many of our Hermetica depict such a universe, one where God is the good or the one, where he either cannot be known or can only be known by analogy from his creation, where he may transcend essence itself and thus transcend cognition itself. In this kind of universe, the door is open to depicting the encounter with God in terms of the esoteric. The metaphysics of strong transcendence generate the esoteric in texts. If God is ineffable, all our discourse about him is discourse about a referent, which must remain secret no matter how much we speak or write about it. So every act of speech or writing is an act of hiding, right? And we've seen some instances of a very ineffable God in our hermetic texts. Along with the apophatic treatment of God found in some Hermetica, we may want to read his character, for example, in the Asclepius, section 20, as having all names and simultaneously no name as pointing in the same direction. So it may be that we have this sort of philosophical style apophatic language and also more what you might call religious style language pointing to the same thing, that whatever we say about God, we're not quite getting it. We've also seen in previous episodes the common hermetic refrain that not all mankind is able to come to know God or encounter God. So we thus have a basic formulation of an in-group and an out-group on a big scale in hermetic thought. But then we get more layers to this in some texts, often framed in terms of privileged faculties of knowledge, right? Most commonly noesis, which is sometimes described as a kind of knowing, but other times described as something much more strange and uh, 
kind of physicalist in a way, like the immersion in noesis in the hermetic krater. And sometimes we get the even more rarefied eyes of nous or eyes of the heart. Sometimes we get gnosis of God and other cognate ideas. The possession and use of these faculties is the criterion by which the hermetist is able to pass beyond simple eusebia to a true encounter with the highest reality. This, I submit to the gentle listenership, is the esoteric in a very pure form. We're not positing merely a group, as in the ancient mysteries, who have a special status because of this or that religious ritual actions they performed. We're imputing to the structure of reality itself a character which is only revealed to the initiates of noesis or gnosis or whatever. Sometimes a kind of directional approach to God in the highest realms of reality, which probably is noesis, you get the idea. So there's a kind of epistemological esotericism going on, which is predicated upon strongly transcendent Platonist metaphysics. I hope that makes sense. Now let us turn very briefly to a subject which we shall be exploring in depth with two scholars, Christian Boll and Anna van der Kirchhoff in upcoming episodes, the question of whether ancient hermetism existed and how, well, esoteric it might have been. Among those who think there was some kind of hermetic movement in antiquity, and this is the emerging consensus in scholarship, ideas differ as to what form it will, will have taken. However, there is one approach to the hermetic materials pioneered by Garth Fowden in his book The Egyptian Hermes, which all such readers of the Hermetica adopt, as far as I'm aware. This approach has the benefit of enabling us to harmonize the seemingly divergent theories expounded in different Hermetica into a single movement. So from pages 99 to 100 of Fowden's Egyptian Hermes, quote, that aspiring hermetic initiates were expected to proceed systematically from elementary to more sophisticated texts, just as Platonic philosophy of the age graded Plato's dialogues for teaching purposes according to their greater or lesser explicitness about the things of the spirit, is preserved precisely from these variations of manner and doctrine between the texts that are so often adduced as evidence of the incoherence of hermetism. End of quote. In other words, the fact that we have these different kind of hermetic universes and different sort of physical and metaphysical theories expounded in different hermetic texts shows that there were levels of initiation, at least on the scale of what you learned in terms of teaching in the hermetic path, that these differences are literary relics of an esoteric teaching structure. Now, I think that if we're to accept that there was a single movement making use of all these disparate texts, or if not making use of every single hermetic text that survives, let's say a range of types of hermetic texts, if we accept this, we need an interpretation like Fowden's. These seemingly different types of doctrine represent different stages in a course of instruction. Otherwise, you, it just all falls apart and you say, well, these just aren't belonging to the same thought world at all, right? I can buy this reading in a general way. So the question then becomes, which texts were put where on the curriculum, right? And here our scholars have very different models, which is in itself fascinating. However, if we accept this basic reading, which I think we must if we want hermetists at all, if we accept it, then we accept that there was some esotericism in the course of hermetic instruction, right? 
You can't do the greater mysteries until you've been initiated into the lesser mysteries, that sort of thing. That's not actually from the Hermetica, but that's the kind of uh, thematic topos we're, we're thinking about here. Now then, at the undoubted risk of another extremely long episode, let us turn to the amazing Corpus Hermeticum 13 and the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead. These texts are deeply wonderful for many reasons, but most especially for this reason. Unlike other Hermetica, maybe except the Poimandres, depending on our reading of the Poimandres, these works seem to depict Hermetic spirituality in action. By which I mean we're given a glimpse of a Hermetic practitioner entering into seriously altered states of consciousness, or being, or both, and emerging transformed, initiated. And not just initiated, but initiated in what is depicted as perhaps the highest initiation of the Hermetic path. Now, Corpus Hermeticum 13 is the text for which the great Reitzenstein coined the term Lese Mysterium, reading mystery. The model here was that this was a text written in such a way that the Hermetist reading it, doubtless having undergone the kinds of preparatory practices and, and learning, actually mentioned in the text itself. So he can't, you can't just pick it up and be initiated. You have to already be a Hermetist and already be working on this stuff. By reading it, this Hermetist actually becomes initiated through the act of reading, actually experiences the vision alluded to in the text. Now, this is a very intriguing idea, and one that has had a great impact on the study of religions in antiquity, with other texts like Apocalypses being read as Lese Mysteria as well, right? So once Reitzenstein formulated this term based on Corpus Medicum 13, it took on a life of its own and has been one way of reading lots of other types of text. Whether or not this text was intended in that way, I'll leave to the listener, but I will say that it Corpus Hermeticum 13 is a Lese Mysterium text. I have absolutely no doubt that Nag Hammadi 6.6, the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead, is also a Lese Mysterium text. That Reitzenstein would have read it that way had he lived to see it excavated from the aforementioned eldritch hoary sands of immemorial Egypt. Now, let me just preface this account with one more observation. I have an idea that this piece, Corpus Hermeticum 13, takes place in the same thought world, or should that be the same curricular level, as the text known as Poimandres. We even meet with Poimandres himself in the course of the text, so listeners may want to read those two texts in conjunction, or not, just as you please. Corpus Hermeticum 13 is entitled The Secret Logos of Hermes to Tat on the Mountain Concerning the Rebirth, Palingenesia, and the requirement of silence. Now, requirement here is epangelia in the Greek. So this is either the this is the announcement of silence, literally. So it's either Hermes announcing that silence is required, or Tat is promising to maintain silence. Um, it, it's unclear from the wording, but the result is the same, right? This teaching is esoteric and must be kept from those who are not ready for it. So Tat begins our text with a complaint. Hermes, you didn't reveal the full truth to me about the palingenesia, the rebirth. But now I am ready. I have learned to separate myself from the world. So here we go. This is the reference to prior training. Now teach me this. Ekphones e krybein, either orally or through 
hidden means. What would Kruben teaching look like? We might find out in the course of the text. Tat says, I'm ignorant, O Trismegistus, of the origin of Anthropos. Now, is this the Anthropos, the primordial man from Poimandres, or is this mankind, the origin of mankind? It's unclear from the syntax, and I think that is intentional from our hermetic author. The reason why I think that will become clear, hopefully. Hermes's answer to Tat is amazing. He says, Anthropos was born from the womb of Noeric Sophia in silence, and the seed was the true good. The one who sowed the seed, the father, was God. So God, his seed is the good, and the um, womb, as it were, that upon which he is projecting his seed is the Noeric Sophia. The one born from this union, the Anthropos, was, quote, God, the Son of God, the All-in-All, composed of all powers, dunamis. So, this Noeric Sophia, wisdom, in silence, reminds us very strongly of the Sophia myth found in many so-called Gnostic texts, and the reference to silence, sige in Greek, may even push us in the direction of the specifically Valentinian teaching. Listeners wanting to follow that thread will find primary sources listed in the notes of this episode. So, Tat accuses Hermes of speaking an enigma, an intentional act of esoteric speech. And to be honest, anyone reading that speech of Hermes might consider it intentionally esoteric. But anyway, Hermes counters. And note how he doubles down on the esotericism here. He says this kind of material, this genos, this genre, is not taught. But when you want it, God reminds you. That is, you have anamnesis. Uh, you recall the truth, which presumably you must have first forgotten. So I think we're looking at Tat wanting to go from being what he is now, Tat, to his true forgotten birthright, being God, the Son of God, the all-in-all, composed of all powers. Uh, the rest of this text, I think, supports this reading. But at any rate, in terms of the esoteric, the point here is that Hermes says, I'm not speaking in riddles. This stuff is just ineffable or otherwise incommunicable until God makes you remember what you already know. That's really esoteric. Hermes and Tat go back and forth in a complex dialogue in the following section. This has been very carefully crafted by the author and has all the marks of a very ritualized, very formalized interchange between the two. But the nuances of this will escape this episode for reasons of time and of my own obtuseness. But we learn a bit more about how this knowledge which cannot be taught, how it comes about. It comes in the form of an aplostontheon, a vision without any shapes in it, a formless vision, but formless in a positive transcendent sense, right? And this vision, Hermes has had it. It led Hermes to possess an immortal body. He is not what he was before. He has been fathered or conceived in noose. Okay, now Hermes says, hopefully Tat will see this vision. When he leaves himself, 
goes out from himself like someone dreaming but not asleep. Now pay strict attention to this. If this isn't a reference to programmatically altered states of consciousness, I don't know what is. It recalls Corpus Hermeticum 1, 1 of course. This is a waking state, but it's comparable to sleep in that the soul is separated from the body and you don't have any senses and stuff like that. The, the actual reference to leaving yourself behind is quite striking though. And whatever is meant here, and I think what is meant here really does go beyond the, um, the format of this podcast, it is, we can say with complete assurance, decidedly heavy. After this, there follows some more back and forth between Hermes and Tat. Tat learns of the Twelve Tormentors. These are qualities or vices acquired through the action of the Twelve Signs of the Zodiac. So we are caught in the circle of the Zodiac, subject to these tormentors, this stops us from becoming immortal, like Hermes. Tat asks Hermes who performs the rebirth, who makes it happen. The Son of God, one man, Anthropos Hes, by God's will. So is the Son of God both the Anthropos and the Noose? I think so, maybe, but it's not explicit in the text, so don't take my word for it. Tat needs to transcend the senses and the Twelve Tormentors. And this, by God's mercy, is how the rebirth works. This is what Hermes tells him. So we've had a long back and forth, and then something happens. Suddenly Hermes is speaking in the present tense. Quote, Gnosis of God has come to us. Ignorance is driven off. End of quote. Then he begins a kind of litany of the astral vices and describes how each of them in the present moment of the narrative, is being cleansed from Tat one by one through corresponding divine powers, these are the dunames, which are expressed as countervailing virtues. Now, after this kind of litany, Tat knows how the rebirth works. The twelve have been driven out by the ten. These are the divine powers. A bit further on in an arithmological passage, we learn that the ten, the decas, the decad, are the immanentized form of the divine powers, and they contain the one within them. So basically, God sends the Tetractus to purify us of astral contamination. That seems to be what's going on here. But getting back to our main narrative in the present tense, Tat says, Now that I have been rendered aklines, that's unmovable or unshakable, or maybe impassable, to use that word again, by God. So he's saying, I've been transformed, I'm now like a mountain i cannot be moved I'm, I'm indestructible now that this has happened i see not with my eyes but through the noetic action of the powers in other words tat's perception is now not through his physical senses but through the decas the decad he has a new set of senses noetic ones tat has been reborn his new body is immortal and indestructible made of usia rather than matter he is, in fact, awfully like the Anthropos from the beginning of the text. The two man-gods, Hermes and Tat, rejoice. And Tat wants to hymn God in thanksgiving, to sing a hymn. Quoting 15, Father, I would like to hear the praise in the hymn which you said I should hear from the powers once I had entered the Ogdoad, just as Poimandres foretold of the Ogdoad. That you hasten to strike the tent is good, child. This striking the tent is to um, 
I think is astrological jargon for getting outside of the temporary structure, the tent of the astral cosmos and entering into the permanent structure of the noetic world. That you hasten to strike the tent is good, child, for you have been purified. Poimandres, the mind of sovereignty, has transmitted to me no more than has been written down, knowing that on my own I would be able to understand everything, to hear what I want, and to see everything. And he entrusted it to me to make something beautiful of it. Thus the powers within me sing in all things as well. I want to hear them, Father, and I wish to understand them, that is, have noesis of them. End of quote. Hermes then tells him to be silent, and there follows a wonderful hymn full of apophatic circumlocutions and other wonders, which listeners will have to check out for themselves. You'll find it at the end of the text of Corpus 13, under the title Hymnodia Crypte, Secret Hymn, or Hidden Hymn. Now that is an extraordinary account. In the Poimandres, we saw Hermes in some pretty extraordinary visionary states, but here we just saw Tat become an immortal god-being while still walking around here on Earth. The process of undergoing this change is depicted not as an ascent, but as both an exercise of nous, or noesis, and as a descent of ten divine powers, which I suspect come from the Ogdoad, based on clues in the text. And these purge him of the zodiacal influence and raise him up to their level. Tat is now a god on earth, perhaps to be identified with the Anthropos, the god, the son of god, the all in all, composed of all powers. Boom. I feel like I was at least halfway initiated while reading this text, and I haven't even done all the preparation you're supposed to do. So it's good stuff, les mysterium or not. But speaking of the Ogdoad, let's turn to our next text. The Ennead reveals the Ogdoad, as we like to call it, more normally known as the Discourse on the 8th and the 9th. This text has no title in the manuscript, Nag Hammadi Codex 6.6, and whichever title we decide to use has to be extracted from the text itself. Here we shall be using the translation by Brashler, Dirksy, and Parrott from Robinson's The Nag Hammadi Library. Now let's look at some similarities between this text and Corpus 13 to start out with. In our text, the disciple is unnamed, but he's constantly called my son by the teacher, and the teacher is named Trismegistus, for it is he. So we're probably looking at another Hermes Tat conversation, I would say. The disciple, whoever he is, argues that he should be allowed to request the experience of the Ogduad and the Ennead. So in astronomical, astrological terms, we're talking about the sphere of the fixed stars, the eighth sphere, and the ninth, which is whatever is beyond the fixed stars, basically where God hangs out. There is also a little hint in this text that there might even be a tenth realm beyond even the ninth, but that's just kind of an esoteric hint in the text. As in many hermetic others, always that kind of question, is there another God beyond the God we think is the highest God? In spiritual terms, I think it's safe to say we're talking about some kind of closeness with God unmediated by the usual cosmic mechanism of planetary vices, fate, etc. This occurs in Nous, so it doesn't necessarily imply, and I think it doesn't imply, that the, the body of the seeker suddenly disappears or flies up into the sky or anything like that. This is a noetic ascent. But, and this I must insist on, that does not mean it's, quote, just happening in his imagination. We have to remember that for these people, Platonizing hermetists, 
that which happens in the noetic is more real. Let me emphasize that again, more real than what happens here in the world of the senses. So they would take a precisely opposite view to it of to a, a normal person in the street who thinks that, you know, stuff that's real is stuff you can bump into and everything else is just fantasy. They're like, no, 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 no. It's quite the opposite. It's assumed in the text that the disciple has already undergone discipline, has attained to a ritually pure way of life. And we also learn that he has read certain texts of instruction. Again, unspecified, but clearly important steps on the road to this ascent experience. So far, so good. We're following the same model as Corpus 13, strongly suggesting to me a formal ritualized structure to the way one went about accessing these visions or experiences or whatever they were. The disciple then makes a formal request for the experience, just like in Corpus 13, which Hermes agrees to, just like in Corpus 13. Prayers and discussion follow, and a central, very important prayer may be meant to be spoken by both interlocutors together, requests that God grant the vision. The teacher and the disciple then embrace, and then Hermes has the vision. He then sort of verbally directs the disciple, who in turn enters the eighth and then the ninth. Naturally, Hermes then tells his student to guard the whole matter in silence. And there's a hymn of thanksgiving, followed by a major esoteric coda, wherein we learn that all of this is secret knowledge of the most absolute secrecy, which can under no circumstances be bruited about, otherwise God will punish you. So, proper esoteric ending to the text. This summary that I've just given shows how similar our two texts are structurally. All of this makes it very hard for me to read these texts without assuming that the stated premise is accurate that there really were hermetists engaged in a student-teacher relationship in which the teacher was helping cultivate extreme visionary experiential states in the disciple. That is, at any rate, what both our texts depict, and they depict it in a way which clearly draws on a common model for the basics of how it's supposed to work in both texts, right? The fact that the 8th and the ninth is a cosmic ascent, while Corpus 13 posits a divinization here on Earth, through a descent of divine power, well, both experiences are explicitly experiences of nous, noesis. And by the way, maybe describing these things as experiences is far too modern way of putting it, because it also tends to make us want to psychologize this stuff. But this is all happening above the level of soul, people, so please don't psychologize it. In fact, our unnamed disciple in the Ogduad, specifically begins by saying, Father, you promised yesterday that you would bring my noose into the eighth, and afterward you would bring me into the ninth. And, well, lovers of visionary cosmic ascent, the right kind of people, are aware of how often the ascent can flip and become a descent. Think of the Merkava descenders to the chariot, or the descent of the Savior in Christianity and many Gnostic texts, which results in the salvation of the believer, which is then realized in an ascent to heaven later on. So in a Levi Straussian sort of way, ascent and descent are often two sides of a flipping coin in these sorts of texts. Is the ascent to the Ogduad and Ennead the same thing as the acquisition of the immortal body? Mm, maybe, maybe not. But there's no reason that they couldn't be the same thing by the internal logic of the ascent-descent topos in Hellenistic religious texts. That's my claim anyway, and please disagree with me if you think I'm wrong. Now, this is a very long episode 
all these hermetic episodes have tended to be on the drawn-out side, making us nostalgic for the early Schwepp when episodes would average 30 minutes or so. But we need to delve into this text just a little bit more, because while it shows all the structural parallels with Corpus Hermeticum 13, it's also full of exquisite differences. The 8th and the 9th posits a group of those who have made the ascent, and this seems like a very cultic group. Hermes says that they are the spiritual ones, so an elite type of human in other words. At a guess, we could probably contrast them with the material ones, or the bodily ones, or the sensory ones, or something like that. These people have been immortalized, so Tat is not the first, in other words. He is going to join them, and if he joins them, makes the ascent as well, he will be their brother. So, this is a brotherhood. And if this isn't depicting the historical hermetists, it's certainly trying to tell us that it's depicting the historical hermetists. Now, the prayers... Uniquely among surviving Hermetic documents, this text gives us Wokes Magikai. So these are hypnotic strings of vowels of a kind typical of many Greek magical papyri. So here's the first example from the disciples' uh, first prayer for God's gift of vision. The prayer opens with, Let us pray, my father. I call upon you who rules over the kingdom of power, whose word comes as a birth of light, and his words are immortal, they are eternal and unchanging, he is the one whose will begets life, etc., 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 kind of an eratology. And after some time, we get the words, Zoxathazo, ao, eo, eo, etc., etc., and then Zozazoth. Now, this is etc., 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 that I've inserted here is a bit weak on my part, because there is a lot of evidence that this passage of vowels is meant to be read aloud, probably chanted, and that the different vowels chanted may well stand for different musical notes. So we may be looking at primitive sheet music here for liturgical use. And there's just a lot going on with the way the quantities of the omegas keep increasing as the text goes along. However, we cannot really get into all that here, so hopefully we'll be able to come back to it in a later episode. If not, then just consider it a little esoteric gem for you to investigate on your own. Now the prayer continues, and Hermes says, quote, Rejoice over this, for already from them the power which is light is coming to us. For I see, I see indescribable depths. I am noose, and I see another noose, the one that moves the soul. I see the one that moves me from pure forgetfulness. You give me power. I see myself. I want to speak. Fear restrains me. I have found the beginning of the power that is above all powers, the one that has no beginning. I see a fountain bubbling with life. I have said, my son, that I am noose. I have seen. Language is not able to reveal this. For the entire eighth, my son, and the souls that are in it, and the angels sing a hymn in silence. And I, noose, understand. The disciple says, what is the way to sing a hymn through it? i.e. silence. Hermes answers, Have you become such that you cannot be spoken to? And then the disciple answers, I am silent, my father. I want to sing a hymn to you while I am silent. End of quote. So, more of our be silent, I am silent theme. But here we also have the theme of a silent hymn. Silence as discourse. Just like the secret hymn at the end of Corpus 13, or at least analogous to it, and remember how knowledge of God was a holy silence and cessation of the senses in Corpus Hermeticum 10? I'm beginning to see a pattern emerging here. 
Now, Hermes then tells the disciple repeatedly to keep what is happening between them secret. The disciple is to ask what he wants in silence. He does so. And then he shouts, Father Trismegistus, what shall I say? We have received this light, and I myself see the same vision in you. And I see the eighth and the powers that are in it, and the angels singing a hymn to the ninth and its powers. End of quote. So, just as in Corpus Hermeticum 13, we see the attainment of the vision depicted in the text. Hermes says, Now we should be silent. Then Tat sings another hymn of praise, finishing with another complex vowel string. So this is another, perhaps, liturgical chant of some kind. Hermes then frames the dialogue as both Egyptian and esoteric. Quote, My son... Write this book for the Temple of Diospolis in hieroglyphic characters, entitling it The Eighth Reveals the Ninth. This book, we learn, is to be written on steles of turquoise, and elaborate instructions are given by Hermes for how it's to be carved. The disciple is even told that the carving must be performed, quote, when I am in Virgo, and the sun is in the first half of the day, and fifteen degrees have passed by me, end of quote. In other words, the astral Hermes, Hermes the planet, whom we met in the Kore Kosmu, is here sitting in the room teaching the disciple. It's the same guy. And the astrological kairos is important for this act of carving the sacred book because this inscribed text is going to be an astral talisman, which in terms of the later Hermetic tradition is exactly what we would expect it to be. So that's a fascinating piece right there. And the text finishes with a long, elaborate set of adjurations and oaths of secrecy. This sacred discourse, once it's carved on the, the tablet of turquoise, must be kept hidden and secret, anyone violating the oath to be punished by God. Boom. With that, we must bid a very fond farewell to our long series spent reading and mulling over various texts of the ancient Hermetica among the most fascinating writings from antiquity, and we haven't even covered the majority of them. Nevertheless, we must move on, and of course we shall be meeting the thrice greatest one again and again in the history of Western esotericism. But before we say goodbye to Trismegistus, we have the distinct pleasure of looking forward to a final series of interviews with leading scholars of the Hermetica on aspects of the Hermetic movement in antiquity. So until then, imitate the entire content of this episode of podcast and stay esoteric. <laughs>